one of the things that really supports parents is action. It is paralyzing to to be on the sidelines watching your child uh, be in this kind of constant car crash. And um, I I have found and I've seen in other parents a huge amount of energy that comes from action, the, the energy of a decision and of action. You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's podcast. So you guys remember Eva Musby, right? She's that lady with the almost addictive, calm, reassuring, soothing voice. I had her on the podcast a couple of months ago, and we talked about how to compassionately give a person with an eating disorder meal support and encourage them to eat. Well, either she has that beautiful, (laughs) soothing voice, but she um, is also a lot more than a voice. She is a parent. She's a parent advocate. She is a coach. She is an author. And she is an expert in eating disorders, having coached a child through one and helped other parents coach their children through theirs. And today, Eva and I have a conversation around the caregiver. I don't like using the word caregiver really when it comes to eating disorders. I think it's especially because as an adult um, sufferer who I work with other adult sufferers and their partners or their spouses or sometimes their parents as well, um, it feels a bit weird saying caregiver for if somebody's your partner calling them the caregiver is it's, it's a bit odd so um it's it's not an ideal term but hey we'll work with what we've got and I think it's definitely more appropriate in the case of the parent to child relationship and if that child has an eating disorder then the parent does become if they're using family-based treatment approach the caregiver and that's stressful I mean it it, it has to be it's a 24-7 job and it often last years and years and so it's crucial that this person the parent the caregiver it may be the partner it may be the spouse knows how to manage that stress that's ongoing and also live a life while they are dealing with helping a person overcome an eating disorder so that's what our conversation today is about As always, I start by asking my guests to introduce themselves. So the first person you're going to hear from is Eva. So uh, I'm a parent. My daughter is 18 and she got anorexia when she was 10 and she got it really severely. Um, We didn't get uh, necessarily the best of treatments initially. So she spent 11 months in hospital. And then after that, slowly, we got excellent treatment. We got family-based treatment. We learned to feed her at home. We learned to take charge. I learned a huge amount on how to communicate with her, uh, mostly through something called nonviolent communication. A lot of learning in mindfulness as well. So with all this learning, I... Uh, decided to write a book once she got well. 
So I'm still extremely active, keeping myself up to date, uh, keeping my book up to date, producing YouTube videos and supporting parents um, in individual um, Skype sessions. And uh, and I also give workshops to, to parents or to clinicians or rather to both at once, which is very satisfying. And I must tell you feedback, a piece of feedback I've had from giving workshops, training to clinicians is, I had never, they, they write, I had never quite realized what's going on for parents. I had never quite appreciated how awfully tough it is for them. And I will have much more empathy and understanding for them. Well, that's a result. So, but isn't that interesting? I mean, these are good people. You know, these clinicians are not stupid. And they're seeing parents and families all the time. And yet it takes that, you know, it, it takes a lot to really get into a parent's shoes. So when parents are feeling not supported by clinicians, it's maybe not very surprising. And maybe we have a job to tell them how we feel and what we need from them. Parents also have a job to look after themselves, which is what I think we're, we're going to talk about today. Um, yeah. Care for the caregiver, right? Indeed, indeed. And I'm going to just reassure the people who are listening here in case they are parents who are really at the end of their tether right now that I'm not going to come up with horror stories. I really believe in, in protecting ourselves um, to, uh, to not go into the misery memoirs and the, the terrible accounts to uh, really sustain ourselves with um, um, huh, how would you say, I was going to say positive stuff. I mean, not daft positive stuff, the truly wise, um, looking forward stuff. So um, I'm hoping that when people hear this podcast, um, they will get some, some uplift, uh, some solace from it, really, because we... We can be in a, in a terrible state and we're, we're looking for that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm hoping we're going to do that. I think just giving the message and making this very clear that as anybody, if you're a parent or if you're a partner of a person with an eating disorder, anybody really in that close environment to a person with an eating disorder, there is going to be high levels of stress. And one thing that I always ask people is, so what are you doing to look after yourself during this time? And then I always, if it's on the phone, I usually get silence. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So, so yes, what so should we'll they be doing? Talk about that. Yeah. But you know, before telling people what they should be doing, I'll tell you what my reticence is in jumping straight into what people should be doing is that the parents will have heard it already. So they'll have heard things like, take care of yourself, um, have bubble baths, go out, um, ask for support. Okay, so this will be no news to anybody. And there can be a real, uh, for God's sake, don't you know, this is much too hard. This not, you know, I am suffering way more than this kind of pat, um, patronizing kind of advice you're giving me. The advice is still right, but people still first need to um, 
know that they've really understood for the, the horror that they're living. You know, the, the fear, I, as a parent, you are living in more or less constant uh, fear. Uh, your child is, is in danger. And um, when your child is not in danger anymore because you've got treatment well in place, you're still experiencing fear several times a day, every time you present them with a meal and they uh, resist and they abuse, you know, give abuse um, when they fight you. You've got your fight and flight activated as a, a parent. You've got the cortisol and the adrenaline. Uh, a lot of parents have got uh, sore stomachs and headaches and tense shoulders. They don't sleep well. They, they, they feel like they're in constant levels of anxiety. And what they're really longing for is some understanding and some some relief, some solace because because of that level of fear. And that's why going around, going to people and say, take care of yourself, make sure you get plenty of sleep. It doesn't land well. First of all, people really want to know, I understand this is really, really hard and that they're normal. So I hope that a lot of what I'm going to say, it relates to my experience and also to the experience I know from a lot of parents, either because I've counseled them myself or because I've read their stories on, on forums. You know, we are all pretty much in the same boat. It is, it is tough and we've got anxiety and we've got tears. So one of the... The things that, that um, people are really wanting help with is the everyday difficulty, the everyday work of supporting their child. And even when, if your child is an adult, you've probably got frequent times when you're thinking, what's going on? What should I do now? Should I be checking up on his or her um, treatment? Should I Skype them today? So... One of the things that I, I think parents really need from wherever they can get it, from a family therapist, from their child's therapist, or from people like you or me or from forums, is um, to, to get help with their communication. So I've looked a lot into this thing called nonviolent communication because it's given me a framework which is really easy to use to communicate in any situation with anyone. And I found it to do wonders to communicate with my daughter when she was resisting every morsel of food or when she was um, really antagonistic and hostile. These communication skills are really, really precious. Can you relate to that? Absolutely. There is... Um, it, it's... It's difficult, um, I know from, I only have the sufferer's perspective, really. I mean, directly, I have a lot of indirect I know you have a lot, yeah. experience. But from the sufferer's experience, it's, it's so, it feels at time, and we learn how to, as we, as we get nourished and as we recover, how to contain 
uh, temper, uh, irritability, uh, eating disorder tantrums. But in the time, it feels radically uncontrollable. Um, mm. And the 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 worst thing that really I think can happen is then somebody um, meeting that with anger or meeting that with some other confrontation um, or abrasiveness. Exactly, you get uh, an escalation otherwise. And the, the, the home really can be a battleground um, as we all lose our tempers. We're all scared. We're all in fight or flight. And so for the parent, there can be, oh, there can be an exhaustion. There can be a shame, so many regrets in how you did not hold the peace because you were at your wit's end and when we're in fight or flight with all the cortisol that's been building up, we are exhausted. We haven't got access to our best wholeness, our best whole brain. So to, um, to have kindness around us, uh, to learn self-compassion for all the things that we did not do as well as we wished we had, is already a massive thing to keep ourselves healthy. And there's very specific ways of uh, doing self-compassion. Uh, obviously, it's about being kind to yourself. And a lot of people are worried about what if that's going to make them self-indulgent and, um, and, and stop paying attention, stop being careful and doing their best. And it's none of that. It's a very powerful tool. And it enables you to pick yourself up after you think, oh, I wish I hadn't lost my temper. Why did I say that? Why is my home still a battleground? And, um, and, and move on and keep doing better and keep mending with your child and mending with yourself and making your home more and more into a place of harmony and peace which we so need as parents. It is, it is exhausting otherwise. And to, to get ourselves back on our feet. And actually, it is surprising how few uh, clinicians will teach you this thing, even though it's an everyday problem. They, they don't really teach you how to keep the calm they, they tell you you have to be calm and confident and compassionate but very few teach you specifically how to do it so that's something i've really wanted to do because it took me a while to learn you know to do the research and find out what were the tools to do that Eva, it really um one of the questions that i wanted to ask you which you sort of just answered really was and it didn't occur to me as a sufferer at all that if I had a confrontation with my with my mother, if she told me to eat more and I lost my temper and had an eating disorder tantrum and slammed the door and ran out the house and went because I didn't live at home, went back to my own house or whatever. I, it never actually occurred to me that she would feel regret after that confrontation with me. Um, and I think it's because I knew that she was right. So why should she feel? regret I, I would feel awful regret about the fact that I just screamed at her and acted like a horrible child um, and it never occurred to me that she would be maybe feeling that as well mm -hmm. 
Interesting that for you, it was obvious that she was right, because one of the stresses on a parent, I would say we rarely know that we are right. And, you know, I've written a book and I still don't know from moment to moment if what I've done was right in the sense that was it the best that could be done. There are so many uncertainties, so many micro decisions in any day when your child has an eating disorder and is having tantrums or finding it impossible to eat, uh, finding it hard to go to a therapist, finding it hard to get weighed. And every time it's the potential for a battle zone or for uh, a discussion where you may come to this agreement or that agreement, so as a parent, I think I think most of the time we're not sure we're right. And, and yeah, there are there are regrets, which is um, only useful if you then um, use them to, to, to learn from them. And it's also really useful when you've got people cheering you on, uh, a counsellor or a pe other parents on a forum that cheer you on and say, you did exactly the right thing because other people can stand back. They've got the perspective. They say, you were in a classic situation. This is obviously a trick of the eating disorder. This is obvious. This is what happens to all children in this situation. And you did the right thing. So that can be, you know, that, that can give a lot of relief. Yep. So that peer support, and like you said, somebody else that's standing back, that's not involved in the situation, not only can yeah. tell you who did the right thing, but also the reasons why that was the right thing to do, the justifications. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah you keep on increasing your knowledge of the illness and how to treat it according to either the research or other people, other parents' experience. And I'll tell you another awful reason why we think we're wrong as parents is that it is, it is a rare clinician who understands how... Oh, how vulnerable we feel, how much we think, um, am I a bad parent? Uh, am I making this worse? Did I even cause this eating disorder? Ah, there's a lot out there that we know. Uh, we know parents don't cause eating disorders. And Laura Collins, um, with her recent podcasts and her materials, is, you know, is, is the person to go to, to reassure ourselves on the science and what the experts say we didn't cause an eating disorder and yet uh, most parents I talk to are still burdened with this weight of did I cause it or um, am I busy making it worse did I make it worse today did I make it worse this morning and the clinicians I think tend not to appreciate how vulnerable or let's say sensitive we are and so uh, they can very easily unwittingly make comments which disempower us and make us think oh my gosh I didn't do the right thing we can also completely disagree with them because we're very well informed we've got the backup of other parents and uh, we've read the books and we can actually uh, hu feel a huge amount of stress because we feel that a particular treatment team isn't um, isn't doing uh, whatever is recommended whatever is best for a child so that is a 
an enormous uh, source of exhaustion and stress for parents. And again, we're back to the communication skills that I really believe in um, going to the clinicians when you disagree with them and going through um, the intention, which is we want what is best for our child and then looking at the strategies you know are we doing why are we doing this let's do this let's try that there's a lot of parents who don't dare really who don't have the skills to really uh, discuss these things equal to equal with the treatment team in partnership and um, and that really exhausts them and um, it can cause more anxiety to doubt your treatment team than the actual illness, in my experience. Right. And um, so these points here, and I really, you know me, I love anything that's non-fluffy, that's actually sort of actionable um, points and tools. And so what we're talking about here is that anxiety and doubting oneself creates stress. That creates a, the sort of worry form of stress, correct? Exactly. And therefore the tools are information, and also yep. support. And when I say support, I don't mean necessarily hold your hand, pat your back sort of support. It is support as in this was the right thing because of X, Y, and Z to reduce that worry. Exactly. Indeed. And on top of that, techniques, uh, learning uh, how to do self-compassion and the fluffy stuff, which is the emotional support from others. So all of that, the practical and the emotional. Where do you think that the majority, if, if this is an answerable question, because it might not be, the majority of parents' stress comes from, do you think it's the actual mealtimes, the tantrums, that sort, the actual interaction with the eating disorder, or do you think it is more the rethinking and trying to work out if they did the right thing and going over things, and I'd class that more as worry than... Um, environmental, in-your-face stress? Hmm, good question. I, th I would put them about equal. And I would add to that what I think is the top source of um, feeling really awful as a parent. And that is the loss of connection with your child. I, I, it, you know, there is a, a deep human need to be close to your child, to be close to other people, to be part of, a, of society, to be part of your tribe or whatever it is, your community and your family, to have acceptance and love and connection. And I think that is possibly what hurts the most um, because we can feel isolated unaccepted from therapists, from our relatives, from our friends, and most of all, from our child. Because on the whole, for many of us, the eating disorder will make the child extremely hostile and resistant. And sometimes um, they exclude one parent in particular. So that, in my experience personally, and also in supporting other parents, that is the most disempowering of 
all the factors. And what I see is that as soon as the connection is re-established with the child, that there is um, the child or the young person or the young adult or whatever, people, parents feel so much better. They go, oh, do you know, just last night, my daughter started opening up to me. Or I remember the day my daughter, we were walking in a park and she reached out and held my hand. She hadn't done that in a whole year. And suddenly the sun comes out and you then become, it becomes way more easy to then put up with all the other stresses, which is like, I don't know if this is the right treatment or I've got to give another meal and I'm scared of the next meal. Everything becomes much lighter um, when you have a, a connection with your child. And for that, I don't have a miracle solution because we can't force our children to, to not be hostile to us. I can give parents utter reassurance, as I'm sure you can, Tabitha, that the hate that they show us um, is superficial, uh, that deep down we have a very strong connection with our children and it comes back. Parent after parent after parent on forums will tell you, I have a very beautiful, strong connection with my child now but it was awful for a while. Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that, Eva. And um, it makes, it just listening to you talk there, and I was really thinking, as I would do, and I think probably many people listening will do as well, as my own relationship with my mother during that time. And I was an adult sufferer, and I wasn't living at home, and we weren't doing family-based treatment because we weren't doing anything. I was just very sick and very resistant. And... I would, almost every interaction that I had with my parents resulted in me having a screaming eating disorder tantrum. And I also, though, when even when that was not happening, and the almost harder thing for me and must have been torturous for my mother, was I felt like there was a real block for me. I could not show affection. It, it was, it felt impossible. Um... I felt a lot of time, like I, all I wanted was a hug or all I wanted was to reach out like your daughter did, that was take, take my mother's hand. And, but, but nothing also felt less possible. It's like, I couldn't even physically do that. It's, it was, and it was that resistance wasn't due to my lack of desire to want to do it. It really felt like I was being stopped from doing that. And as um, I recovered and as I weight restored and also my brain started to restore function due to the nourishment I was receiving when I was eating more, that, that block left, it lifted, it went and I was able to show affection again. Mm. You are going to do so much um, good for the parents hearing you right now to hear that you really wanted to reach out. It's, it's like food, you, you, you know, you cannot do it. There's something illogical that is stopping you from doing it. And to see your child giving you such hate and to know there's a part of her which, you know, which is making, which 
means they would really love to reach out. They they want to know that you love them. It, it's incredibly one-sided, actually, because our children need unconditional love. And they are not giving us that at all. They are giving us hate. So uh, this is why we need to be super well-resourced to have to have the well-being in ourselves to be able to give out unconditional love while changing the behaviors, not accepting uh, restricting behaviors, while also receiving no love back for a long time or on and off. It's intermittent, it's unpredictable. It's, wow. So to hear you, Tabitha, knowing that it's not forever and that it is not it's, it's not really hate it's it's a it's nearly a behavior no and like you said it was it's exactly the same actually as the the same way i could not eat food and i was hungry um i i couldn't eat and i couldn't reach out and take a biscuit out of the biscuit tin no matter how long i sat there and was obsessing about actually just doing that i still couldn't physically do it and I think more to your point as well that it's not it's um I I did want that love um but wasn't offering it a lot of the time not only was I not offering it I was actively rejecting it so if my mother tried to hug me I would push her away it yeah. it wasn't like I couldn't just go up and hug her I if she gave it to me I was actively repelling it and that felt awful for me as well because all I really wanted was a hug, but I couldn't stand there, I couldn't do it. And the other thing was, in the moment, all she would get was resistance. A lot of the time, as soon as I did leave my parents' house, got in my car, I would be in floods of tears. Wow, what a gift you're doing to parents by explaining all this, wow. I wish I understood because, it, oh. <laughs> didn't at the time. <laughs> you know, because, um, most parents will know what it's like to reach out to give a hug and to to get um, your hand batted away uh, and oh you can miss hugging so much as a parent it's like a physical um, emptiness so um we can fill ourselves with um, really visualizing that our child is as you describe you know there's all this this depth to our child it's 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 not a little it's not a little demon that is um, just full of hate on the contrary and uh, yeah gosh we need to top ourselves up emotionally because it, it there is this emptiness yeah and I think the same is very true. We're talking about the parent-child relationship. Same is absolutely true for adult sufferers and partners as well. Um, mm. And it, you know, it must be just as difficult for a partner of somebody with an eating disorder to be constantly pushed away um, and not take that personally. And it's all very well to say, don't take it personally. It's just the eating disorder. But how is that possible? How, how can one not take that personally? I still don't know the answer to that. I think to, when you're told to not take it personally, the appeal is to your logic, your rational skills, and this is an emotional issue. So far more useful is hearing uh, the kind of description you've just made of your experience, because that hits the emotions. It's 
um, I think as parents listen to you or as a partner listen to you, they will really get it. Uh, it's quite different from being told, don't take it personally. Because we, it is, it is extremely personal. We have a need for connection and it is not met for weeks or months on end. So how more personal can that get? Yeah. And so I do think that, that there is a lot of stress reduction from just um, knowing that, knowing that it isn't personal and no matter how difficult that is to understand logically from knowing it. Indeed. Um, Indeed. And so how, how can we build from there, do you think, with, with ca- carrying on? Because this goes on for years in some cases, um, longer in even more tragic cases. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a long slog, isn't it? It is, yeah. I think um, some people um, cope by cutting themselves off. And one of the things that can happen, again, we're into fight, flight and freeze. Some parents will say, I don't even like my child. I mean, you, you, you can just be a parent of a very ordinary teenager and say, I don't like my child anymore. So uh, you, get, you get cut off, you cut yourself off for your own safety, your own survival from, from any depth of feeling. You might just go through the motions. And then there's other parents who um, just keep going. They are really tough. They toughen it out. And um, if they don't do that with uh, enough support, um, what can the, the risk? I'd, I'm not. I'm not speaking from science here. I'm just cautioning that the risk would be post-traumatic stress disorder later on, because some parents do report that at some stage. So I think the self-care all along, so that the 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 mini traumas that you go through every day or um, at the next therapy session or at the next hospitalization, all these are traumas. If you can process them as you go along rather than toughen them out and hold on for dear life, then I think um, you can then transform, you can grow into what is called post-traumatic growth you can transform hardship into wisdom and uh, living life to the full, having better resilience, better coping skills. Again, there's very few, uh, there's very little of that in conventional family therapy. Um, I, I think you need to go and hunt for people who really get that. Um, to the, the skills to transform hardship into something very strong, uh, which will serve you for the rest of your life. Uh, and I'm passionate about helping parents do that because I've I've researched it. And I think it is, I have, I have seen it in parents. I've seen parents transform. Um, I mean, one of the parents I've been supporting, her child, I think, is one, one of the worst cases of anorexia. I know very, very long hospitalization, very long tube feeding. And, you know, this woman is wisdom itself and she she has joy. 
So she she feels the suffering, uh, and she keeps living with joy as well. And you know, there's no greater wisdom. There is suffering in the world. There is pain. And we can live well and we can be joyful. So the more we can um, learn to do this, the more then we can be out there for the long haul and, and still live well. And it, it makes us at our best to support our child. So it's win-win for, our, for ourselves, for our families, our partners and for our child. Am I being a little bit too abstract here, by the way? <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm, I think I'm guessing it. I, I was going to ask, I wonder if you have any sort of examples of, of how, uh, say for that, with that woman who, who you described as she is joyful and she is, is managing through this, but, but yeah. do you know what she does and they, or one of the things that she yeah. does? Okay, Tabitha, I'm going to just slot in a little extra here. And that's before I answer uh, the question by giving an example of this particular woman and of others that I have supported, I want to warn people against uh, comparing themselves. So the idea of giving an example is to show what's in every single one of us. Some people go at things in their own way, different speeds and... Um, uh, Transforming anger or pain or grief is not a competition and there's no particular timeline, time scale attached to it. Okay, I'll go on with answering your question now. One of the things she does is she's really nurtured her relationships, so uh, really supportive friendships. And um, um, like many parents, they discover mindfulness, they discover yoga, or they discover art or walking or their dog. Um, so all these things. But the, the very specific thing that um, I guide her and other people with is um, comes from the practice of mindfulness and the, the technique. You know, we don't need to get mystical about this. It's a technique. It's that when you are distraught, you pause and you notice the pain that you're in and you notice the terrible thoughts that you have and the, the catastrophizing thoughts about the future or the agonizing thoughts about how far about the past. You notice the effect on your body, how clenched and tense and horrible and sick you feel you notice all these things and you stay with them with kindness for long enough for them to then transform and this is the magic that we are built to not stay with horrible emotions if we just stay with them a little bit with kindness. Now, sometimes it's too hard to do by yourself. The panic rises and you want to go and distract yourself. Distraction is a fantastic tool for um, immediate well-being. But for the longer term, you need support. You need someone to hold your hand so that you feel safe. And um, uh, because we are social animals and uh, to have to have the time to go, I really, really hurt. 
for the tears to come, for the a real acknowledgement of how horrible something is. So you're really feeling the grief. And gradually, if you're open to it, you may notice a um, complete shift. And I see this uh, all the time with the parents I support. That they, they'll, you know, if they've got their eyes closed, they'll open their eyes and they'll go, oh, uh, I love my child so much. And there's a big smile that comes out. Or um, I have hope. Or um, I really am going to do the very best I can for her. Or something like that. There's a power, inner power that comes out from spending time acknowledging the pain. So these are really pretty run-of-the-mill skills in some circles, you know, in some therapies or in mindfulness practices, but they're maybe not well known. Maybe you need guidance to learn them, but they work extremely well. Very effective. Um, and Eva, one um, other thing I was going to ask you about is, um, so eating disorders, we've talked about different forms of stress being in the same house or a parent of somebody who has an eating disorder, the worry um, that you've done the right thing and sort of constant going over those things, the in, in the moment tantrums. Um, but then I think that there's another level which is um, incredibly nefarious side, um, side to, to the eating disorder. And I've done it as a sufferer. We can get very personal. Um, and especially with a parent, somebody whom we have lived with and know extremely well, um, we know which buttons to press. We know where the insecurities might lie. And most awfully, we know where those insecurities about being a parent might lie. And we can mm. throw those back. Um, just observation-wise, parents that I know that have supported a child through an eating disorder, the ones that seem to, and I hesitate to use the word, but... I'm going to use it anyway. The ones that seem to shine and, and actually really almost excel from being a parent um, and sort of parenting a child through an eating disorder and, and using family-based treatment and all of those tools seem to be those that have high levels of self-esteem from the offset. Yeah, this is where, this is where um, being a parent of someone with an eating disorder is a journey of growth we wouldn't ever want it but when we look back we think gosh that made me grow that made me a better person and it's because you you cannot afford to to be sensitive to stay with self um self-hate yourself uh, so this is where learning self-compassion comes in so that um, uh, which is stronger than self-esteem. Self-esteem can um, be a little bit artificial, that, that you're, you're trying to convince yourself you're a great person. Self-compassion is about uh, thinking, uh, gosh, um, this is hard um, and uh, I'm going to be kind to myself about uh, all the imperfections that I have. So that means when your child pushes your buttons, um, pointing out something that you're sensitive about, well, you're actually not that sensitive about, you're not that sensitive about it because you've already had a lot of practice being kind to yourself about it. 
So um, I'm trying to think of an example. What would my daughter push my buttons with? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, if my daughter wanted to push my buttons and say, you don't love me, it just would do nothing to me because I have spent so long being very aware of how much I love her or you've done all the wrong things. I think, well, no, that doesn't push my buttons because I know I haven't done all the right things, but I know my heart has been in there and I've really done my best. So this is all the self-compassion work, you know, that it makes you, it, it, it removes most of your, your buttons and and when your buttons are pushed, you can uh, do instant self-compassion. You know, in a matter of a few seconds, you can do that in your in your head and in your body and in your heart, and it, it sustains you to to not react and go into fight or flight and lose all your resources. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I like that you made a difference there between um, self-esteem and self-compassion. I, I think. I hadn't thought of it that way. I think that's that's a really um, valid and good difference, um, a different way to yeah. think of it. It's a useful concept, and uh, I haven't invented it. There is a very good TED talk, very famous TED talk, and a website also by Kristin Neff. Her site is selfcompassion.org, and she really explains this difference between self-esteem and self-compassion. And as self-esteem is very much talked about um, for the sufferers of eating disorder, I think it's it's worth um, knowing more about that. Eva, if there's is there anything else? We're sort of drawing to an end here. Is there anything else that you would like to say, or um, you know, to anybody that might be listening? Well, now that we've done all the compassion stuff, we can um, go back full circle to the little practical things, you know, the bubble baths, <laughs> the things that drive people crazy. We do need fun. We do need outings. I, I would recommend to any parent to uh, put a lot of um, importance, uh, really respect themselves by scheduling in um, uh, sociable and fun activities, um, asking for the help um, from anyone who's um, anyone who says, "Can I help?" Be specific. Say, "Yeah." Um, if it's at all possible to to have someone uh, hold the fort once a week while you go out, you know, I used to go and play music in the pub once a week, and another time a week I used to go and dance. I used to do. I still do a dance called Bio Dancer, which is nourishing and emotional and brings out the connections that I was lacking with my daughter. So, you know, anything that is fun and nourishing, already we're often not working as parents. Very often we've, we are lacking the stimulation and satisfaction of work. So we, we, it's really wise to take ourselves seriously, take our well-being seriously and not go, oh, poor me, it's impossible for me to take care of myself. To, to, to look at it very seriously, listen to the offers of help anyone is giving us, uh, use our communication skills to ask for support so that we can make our lives more balanced and more whole. And I'm very aware, I, I just want to mention so that people feel understood, that for a lot of us, there's a financial pressure as well, you know, of... Um, 
um, it adds to our stress when we've stopped earning money or when treatment costs a lot of money, which, you know, in, in the UK, it's, we're very lucky that uh, we can get the tre treatment for free. And we need rest. Um, very often we don't sleep enough because we're caring for our child. Sometimes we're on self-harm or suicide watch. Uh, so we, we need to take care of our rest, our, our food, uh, our gentle exercise. You, you and I don't want excessive exercise, do we, Tabitha? No. <laughs> just, just what's good for us. And, you know, um, anything that is going to reduce the fight or flight, that is going to reduce the cortisol levels, um, that is going to make us feel good. You know, we, that, this is a physical thing for us as well as an emotional thing. Um, so... Um, yeah, good good hygiene, and to, to to trust that this is not going to submerge us. This 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 illness of you know, supporting our child through this illness um, does not have to become something that um, that kills us, that knocks us over, that damages everything in us. It can be a springboard for for good things for better, deeper connections, for, for, for well-being, for really appreciating the important things in life. So I'm really hoping that the parents who are hearing this are feeling some, some uplift and some support from all this. And um, one thing I've noticed, because um, even I mostly speak to partners of adults with eating disorders, but a lot of the time they partners are giving 24-7, seven days a week, meal support. Mm. And I'll say, so when did you last have a, a, a break from meal support? You know, a meal that somebody else did get, you know, um, your mother-in-law or a friend or a different family member or whoever came and, and did that meal and it's usually again sort of a um well not ever sort of answer and yeah then I say you need to make this happen but yeah. I think that there's and they will they will agree and say yes I really need a break but then the part where that goes um those intentions don't come up because it's not going to happen by accident that break doesn't happen by accident you actually have to schedule it in and you have to plan it and you have to be very disciplined in planning it and not letting other things get in the way of that time that evening off or whatever it was that you picked um yeah and i think you that's need to really value bit. yourself mm -hmm. you need to prioritize uh, value yourself you know really understand that uh, you're the one holding the the oxygen mask in this business keep yourself well and i um i want to plug the service that you seem to have created where you can support uh, uh an adult's meals by by skype is that right that's right online meal support which actually arose out of this sort of conversation um mm. And but you know whether it be online or be in person, there are some people that really they they're still at the stage where they need in-person meal support. And the other thing that I think is really interesting um, about scheduling it and making it say a recurring Wednesday evening um, 
thing that another family member comes in and supports the meal that Wednesday evening is it's actually easier on the sufferer's side as well. Because once we get used to that, it becomes part of the weekly routine. Whereas if mm. it's just something that happens once every three months, that, that mealtime is very difficult to have a different person there and it's all all over the place and it's completely knocked our eating routine mm. or, or whatever. That's, that's mentally very hard. But if it happens once a week, that becomes much easier and expected. And so it's easier actually for everybody involved if these things are planned and if they are consistent as well. What you're reminding me of is that um, the other thing is you are demonstrating by having a weekly outing that is scheduled and that you're sticking to, you are reminding uh, the the ill person that life is precious and that it goes on and that you respect your needs. So um, certainly uh, for my daughter, I think there was a feeling of guilt. Uh, every time she could see I had red eyes, she probably felt very guilty that maybe she was destroying me. And of course, there were many times I felt like I was being destroyed. And uh, to, to go out and have fun and say, I'm off dancing, sends a strong message that things are okay. I'm okay and life goes on and life is precious and one day um, she will be dancing as well you know which is, you know this is the the message we give to our children that there is wellness uh, in the picture so there's a what you said reminded me of that one of the things that really supports parents is action it is paralyzing to to be on the sidelines watching your child uh, be in this kind of constant car crash. And um, I, th I have found and I've seen in other parents a huge amount of energy that comes from action, the, the energy of a decision and of action. So that can give you courage. You've got clarity. You know what you want to do and you go ahead and you do it. And with that, you can put up with a lot of rubbish because you've got very clear direction. So that's interesting. Can you give me an example of, of what sort of action you're talking about there? So, uh, for example, uh, when my daughter was looking like she might have signs of relapse, I agonized for a long time about what to do about it. How bad was it? So I would try and reassure myself. I would talk endlessly with my husband about it. I would kind of not be very clear. And then the day I just went, I'm going to have a conversation about this. I'm going to tackle this head on. Um, I am going to um, weigh her. I am going to support the, the meals and see how it goes. Then she put up resistance, but I felt great because I knew what I was doing. I had let go of all this uncertainty. Yeah. And for some parents, they need support before they can do that because they're so much in fight or flight that they cannot take action. Fight, flight and freeze. So, um, so it's, all, it's all linked. But yeah, that, that's why you, 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 sometimes everything is done in small steps. Um, it's an uh, iterative, um, uh, iterative process to, to get support, to get the compassion 
feel you get you've had a top up, then you can take action. Yes. Then you feel better. And, and I want that. to just say to people, um, I've been talking a lot about getting support. And for some people, it is a shameful to go and see a counsellor. And um, I have just learned you do not do anything that hard by yourself. And I will go and get counselling for myself anytime I feel that there are hardships. Um, I just I just do not see the sense of doing something on your own, even though I have a lot of skills for myself. Um, other human beings really matter in this. You need the support to take the action a lot of the time because it can seem so overwhelming and bewildering and you're in fight flight and most often that turns into freeze yeah this state where 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 it feels like there you just it's, there's so much there so overwhelmed that which action do you actually take um and i think the support as you said can can help get out of that and then into action so um eva you've just given us an hour's worth of really wonderful information and i know that people will be hungry for more so how can they how can they find out more about you? So website is evamusby.co.uk. Uh, that's Eva is E V A and Musby is M U S B Y. And uh, I've got Facebook, I've got Twitter. If you just Google Eva Musby, you'll find it. I've got obviously a book for parents, which is available anywhere uh, through bookshops or Amazon um, and um, on my website people can find out there's a, a tab that's uh, labeled coaching and they can get in touch with me for individual support if um, if that's something that they would like. Thank you Eva. Mm, it's been a pleasure. Actually you know what a couple of people said to me after the last one is that your voice is is very calm and reassuring and very therapeutic to listen to and so somebody did email me a parent who just said it was just I had to listen to the podcast four times and I, I keep it and still keep listening to it just because that woman's voice is so calming Oh, um, well, I've, I've had to do self-compassion on my voice because no one ever likes their own voice. Okay, so that reminds me, Tabitha, another resource is on YouTube. If people just Google YouTube, um, Eva Musby, I have, I have videos with practical tips. But if people like my voice so much and if they want to learn self-compassion step by step, I've got um, YouTube videos doing that. They're called, um, I think they're called meditations, oh, great. Um, gu guided meditations. Maybe you can send me the link and I'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, I'm glad people like my voice. <laughs> <laughs> A big warm thank you to Eva Musby for coming on the podcast again and taking the time to talk with me. So if you're an adult sufferer of an eating disorder or a spouse or a partner of an adult sufferer of an eating disorder, you will have noticed that most of the things that we talked about were about parents um, dealing with children. But I think you'll also notice that most of them are also applicable to you. And all of those stresses, the worries, to have you done the right thing, were you right to cause an argument over whatever wasn't or was eaten? 
We write to bring something up. We write to question your partner's motivation to doing exercise that caused an argument. Should you have just left it alone? Should you have pushed harder? There's a barrage of questions all of the time and worries. And all of the things that Eva spoke about really do apply for you if you are a partner, a spouse, or a parent of an adult sufferer with an eating disorder as well. You may not have the same and you won't have the same degree of um, control necessarily as a parent of a child will have, a child that's living under a, that person's roof. But you can have the same degree of influence and the things that we were talking about, um, sort of affection and the eating disorder, how I said that my eating disorder wouldn't allow me to be emotionally affectionate. I was incredibly cold. And um, I know that this becomes a problem for spouse relationships and, and partner relationships when there is an eating disorder in one person in that party. Um, I just want you to know that like we were saying, don't take it personally. You can't take it personally. And even as I say that, those words sound so hollow to me for me saying that, because how can you not take it personally? But I just want to give you some hope in that when your partner begins to recover, that will change. And that person will come back to you. And the key to a lot of that is recovery. And that means eating and helping them overcome restrictive tendencies. So the pushing that you are doing now, it, it's in the right place. And it may feel so hard at the time, and it may feel like all you're doing is causing another argument, and all you really want is an evening's peace. But it will be worth it in the end when you have that person back. As always, please reach out to me if you have any questions, if you have any topics you would like me to discuss on this podcast. I'm here for you guys. <laughs>